Welcome to Mission Critical, sale leaseback podcast by Ascension, the world's number one sale leaseback show. We share the latest in sale leaseback advice from the best in the game to keep you at the cutting edge of the hottest emerging practices in corporate real estate. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. We talk to sale leaseback. Okay, welcome. Today on the show, we welcome Christopher Mertlitz. Chris is a managing director and head of European investments for WP Carry. As many of you know, WP Carry is one of the leading and diversified net lease REITs in the world and probably the pioneering company of the sale leaseback transaction. Chris is a graduate of Oxford and has been with WP Carry since 2011. As head of European investments, Chris's key role is to oversee all activity, including the sourcing, underwriting, negotiating, and structuring of European transactions. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. So let's start off by talking about WP Carry. As I said, pioneering the sale leaseback transaction, the company with a 50-year track record worldwide, and now 25 years plus going in Europe. So how has WP Carry been able to maintain such long-term sustained success? Great question. I would say it comes down to the basic fundamentals of what we do and how that has actually remained consistent over those five decades. And it's actually amazing to look back and try to think of other companies that haven't really changed their business model that much fundamentally in 50 years. It's actually quite rare. Nowadays, it's also popular to talk about pivoting your business model and pivoting from one thing to the next. And we've really been from the get-go true to this pioneering model that Bill Carey five decades ago really started in many ways, the sale and leaseback. And it's a testament to the business model itself that it has been so successful for five decades through business cycle up and down. And as we go through the current economic environment and we clearly see the ups and downs of the cycle, it is obviously something that works in good times and in bad. And it goes back to a couple of fundamental things that we look for in these transactions, whether it's, first of all, the credit quality and the counterparties that we work with. And that's really something we pride ourselves in is that credit underwriting that is so key, so core to what we do. And in many ways, the bedrock of our analysis. And then second of all, is to make sure that the buildings that we acquire have qualities that we can quantify and qualify and really understand as to why they're so important to the tenant. And obviously the word everyone likes to use so much is mission critical, which is a very topical in respect of what we do. So that's the other thing that just this laser focus on quality tenants, mission critical real estate, And then you combine that with a good focus on structuring these deals, what you can get out of them, how you can structure quality leases, quality income profiles, and ultimately also making sure you buy good real estate. So I think the reason we are still doing the same thing 50 years on is because it's a model that works well and that works well through cycles. My guess is also probably really good people, great leadership that believe in that model and when times are tough say, no, we're going to stick to it because this is the right model and this is the proven, you know, 50 years now, right? You're completely right. And it's people business. And we're a small firm. WP Carry is not a, we manage a lot of assets and we're active in 25 countries around the world, in North America and obviously throughout Europe. But you're completely right. It's a people business at the end of the day. And it's a testament also when you look at the company and certainly its leadership, how long they have been with the firm. And it's that track record and it's that longevity in the underwriting and also the investment philosophy that is absolutely a great element of the company. And I know it's an important part of why we've been doing well over those years. So let's hop into the sale leaseback, which, you know, as you just said, is a big reason or the reason for the success of WP Carry. Let's talk about like advantages 
of the sale leaseback. And let's look at both sides of the transaction. WP Carry as the buyer, as the acquirer of these properties and structuring the sale leaseback transaction. Why is that advantage advantageous for WP Carry? But why is also the sale leaseback advantageous for the seller, for the business? Sure. I'd say if you look at it from our perspective, what do we get out of it? And what do our investors ultimately, as a public listed company, get out of it? I'd say real estate and, and certainly the way we structure these deals, it lends itself very favorably towards generating long-term predictable income. And whether it's a sale and lease back or whether it's a build to suit, which is another key element of the transactions that we basically structure, or whether it's the purchase of an existing building with an existing lease, ultimately it all comes down to one basic question. Is this long-term sustainable income? And that's what we try to generate. And that's what we would like to get out of these transactions. And that's what our investors would like to have. They want to have nice, durable, long-term, inflation-protected income. So that's what we try to get out of the deal. Now, if I look at it from the perspective of a seller, what are they trying to get out of it? And it can be many different things. So the beauty of the sale and lease bag is you can essentially monetize real estate that you have on your balance sheet, an illiquid asset, and you can turn it into cash, which is, as we know, the most liquid of assets. And that can be used for all kinds of good purposes. It could be to repay debt. It could be to finance some new business venture or business initiative. It could be used as part of an M&A acquisition where you use your real estate, an illiquid asset, to then acquire a growing or an additional operating company. And sometimes if you structure it well, you can actually use the real estate of the target that you're looking to acquire to finance partially that acquisition, which I'd say then that's... So the pinnacle of how you can structure it is actually using less of your own capital to acquire a particular target that works well with your company. So there are many reasons. And another one could be as part of a city lease bag, and certainly relative to an alternative source of capital, let's say maybe you want to consider getting a mortgage instead of that building. It's also the duration and length of that income profile, and at least from the seller's perspective. If you have a mortgage, well, you will have to refinance that at some point, and you're susceptible to changing interest rate environments. And that's certainly something we're seeing very much at the current point in time, where rates have moved up quite dramatically, and also where refinancing in itself has become a lot more difficult. With a sale and lease back, there is no refinancing. It's a very, very long-dated form of financing for companies, and it's basically one additional tool in the treasure chest of CFOs, of finance directors, of companies, of how they can finance themselves. Very good. So you being one of the most active, you know, transactional individuals in Europe for sale leasebacks, you know, I've had the opportunity to hear you speak on panels, attend a lot of conferences, podcasts. You're a sought after individual due to your expertise and due to your experience. One thing that I hear you say quite a bit, which coincidentally is the name of this podcast, is mission critical. What does that mean to you? Great question. Mission critical. I think sometimes it might even be slightly overused. These days, when you see a lot of these pitch books and memos, it sounds like almost every piece of real estate is nowadays mission critical. So it's somewhat used inflationary in that context. But what we mean by that is asking a very simple question. Why does a particular tenant want to be at this particular building? What's the connection? Why does this tenant need this building? And why do they want to stay there? It's a very, very basic question. But once you actually uncover that, there's a lot to it in the background that follows from that. And I would say it's something that maybe across the real estate industry is actually one of the most misunderstood questions. Because often when you look at a transaction from a pure real estate perspective, you might think a company's newest or most shiniest building or the one in the best location or 
the CBD office, that's the most mission critical. That's the newest building. That must be the most important one. But I think that's a very, very flawed understanding of the actual context and the background. So when we think about mission criticality, it really comes down to figuring out and understanding the connection between the tenant and the building and why a particular company is very, another way to call it, sticky. Why do they want to be there? And this could be different things depending on the asset class. If you look at it, maybe from, let's pick a retail store, it could be one easy metric or at least one proxy you could use would be the profitability of the retail store. Obviously, the more profitable the location, the more likely a tenant likes to be at that site and the more likely they're going to stay there. If you look at it maybe from a logistics location, you could look at what proportion of a company's products flow through that single site, how many stores are actually supplied from that single location, how difficult would it be to relocate those operations somewhere else. If you look at a manufacturing location, for instance, that makes some, let's say, generic widget, then you could ask the question, okay, what proportion of a company's sales, what proportion of a company's EBITDA actually is generated from the products made at that site? Or you could ask questions like, okay, relative to what you buy the property for and relative to the rent level that you agree with the tenant, how much would it cost to actually replicate that site somewhere else? The tenant might have a huge amount of installed equipment in the property, and it would be very, very expensive to relocate that, or maybe not impossible to relocate that. And you know, to give you maybe another one to think of, which is a deal I like to mention in the context of Mission Critical, Last year, we acquired in Spain a large portfolio of 26 crematoriums and funeral homes. And again, if you're in the business of cremation, then it is relatively easy to understand why a crematorium might be something that's mission critical and not something that you're going to relocate all that easily because these things are not that easy to get permits for. If you have a particular crematorium already in a certain town, it's quite unlikely that someone else is going to come in and try to compete with you. So... It's one of the most interesting things actually I like about what we do is trying to find those little nuances in transactions. And depending on the asset class and depending on the context and depending on the company, really trying to understand the business elements. And that's, again, one of the things we love about what we do is that business-related focus and finding what is actually mission critical and what is not. That crematorium is a great example. Yeah, the typical retail clothing store may be able to pick up and move across the street or coffee shop, but not the crematorium. The city, the public, they're not going to allow that typically. Right, very, yeah, very luck. difficult. Very smart. And I love it. Yeah. Good luck trying to get a permit for those sort of things. It's <laughs> very, very sticky. And, you know, as they say, death and taxes, right? Those are the two things that are certain in life. So, no, it's a good example in that context. And um, it shows that when you look at it purely from a real estate perspective, that would not even be something on your radar. It's not third party usable. It's very specific for a single use. It's not really something that many would consider even as real estate in that sense, as an investable product. But you can make it an investable product by understanding the importance and by structuring, which is, I'd say, the third key element is how do you actually structure such a deal. You can then make it very much an investable product and one that actually lends itself very well to generating long-term, durable, inflation-protected income, which is what we look for. Yeah, no, I think that's it. And just going back to the crematorium again, when I look at Ascension, you know, we're a brokerage firm, we're selling the real estate part of the transaction. And your typical broker is not in a million years going to think of giving a crematorium a call. It's just not going to be on their radar. But when you start thinking really not from the real estate perspective, but from the business perspective, which is how we need to be looking at these sale leasebacks, 
it does actually make a lot of sense, but it's definitely not on 99.9% of people's radars. So kudos to you all to see that opportunity. I'm sure that's going to work out to be very fruitful. So let's shift to, you know, talking about the market today and really what's happened in the last two or three years until today. You know, I listened to you talking on another podcast. It was in, you know, September of 2020. And at that time we were in the middle of COVID, but WP Carry was very bullish. I think you had given out a stat. You guys were 99% getting your collection. So things were going very well. And I know from the onset of COVID till probably the middle of 2022, WP Carry's had tremendous growth, but things have obviously slowed down now. Interest rates have risen dramatically. And now, you know, just in the last, what, month or three weeks, we've seen some cracks in the banking system. So how have all these recent changes from interest rates to now the potential banking crisis impacted WP Carry's business strategy overall? That's a great and very deep question. I'd yeah. say that there's a whole arch actually to span. Let's maybe go back to 2020 when we had a relatively benign, at the beginning at least, business environment and rates were relatively low and stable and you had a, let's call it a baseline of economic activity. Then COVID happened. So we enter... Anyway, the word uncertainty seems to be the world in, seems to be uncertain and appears to be like the only thing that's certain these days is uncertainty. But we moved essentially into a health crisis, which had from an economics perspective, but would have had enormous implications on what actually happened to the economy. Now, the response by central banks all around the world was to open up the floodgates of cheap money and make sure that there's ample liquidity available. And it sort of deferred a little bit this process of feeling the economic impact of health-related crises. And I think that as we moved out of that, we moved maybe from 2020 into 2021, we carried that somewhat over. And actually, 2021, you're right, we saw great momentum in terms of transaction volumes and transaction activity. And 2021 was actually one of our record years in terms of transaction volume. But now it seems like as we've clearly moved past the health-related crisis, the ugly face of inflation came around. And another question is, how do we deal with that? And it's that whole arch in a way, it's that unwinding of this ultra accommodative monetary policy where rates were essentially kept artificially low just to keep stimulating the economy. Now we're seeing the other sides effect of that, which is inflation. And the question now is, how do we get out of that? Well, what are central banks doing? They're rising rates, they're increasing rates to stem inflation, unsurprisingly. Now, one of the, again, the side effects of having this very, very accommodative and very loose monetary policy is that across a wide number of asset classes, we've seen some pretty, well, I'd say unusual pricing. And real estate clearly is one of them, where we've seen record low yields. And it's basically been one long 10 years since the great financial crisis, 11, 12 years, in which cap rates have come down again, again, and again, and again. And now this basically starts to unwind. And we're entering a new phase, which I would say is the new normal, but actually maybe we should look at it actually as the normal and the period that we were in in the last 10 years was actually abnormal environment where rates were just way too lower than they probably should have been. That adjustment is going to take time and that adjustment in itself going from a very low level and low base interest rate environment to somewhat more normal environment, which for us kind of feels high now, but maybe it's actually more normal. That's a painful process and that will take some time. And that being said, I actually think there's a lot of opportunity in that environment. There's a lot of opportunity that is embedded within that change. And 
one key factor that we see at WB Carry as an all-equity buyer is that we are somewhat less susceptible to these dislocations that we're seeing on the capital markets, which are a consequence of reverting back to this new interest rate environment. Makes sense. And so, you know, I think we're going to lean into something in a minute, which is because interest rates have rocketed up, there's obviously a big buyer and seller gap on expectations of prices, on expectations of yields and the returns that each should get on a purchase or a sale. And, and we'll hop into that. And I think, you know, when we talk about the differences between really North American and Europe markets. But, you know, there's an argument, though, that the sale leaseback right now strategy for business owners and operators and the seller of real estate is a better solution for financing than really any other option on the table right now. So can you elaborate on that? I think there's definitely truth to that, though. I want to caution a little bit. So the sale and leaseback in itself is not a tool that only works well in a certain market environment. It works well when rates are low. It also works well when rates are high. And as a specific example, if you go back to 2021, which was, again, a relatively benign business environment and rates were very low, we had record transaction volume. So it doesn't mean just because we are now in a dislocated capital market environment that this is the time for the single leaseback. There are certain supporting factors, but there are also certain factors that go against it. So it's not just a way of capital raising during bad times. I kind of don't like that idea because it, it again, if someone misunderstands, puts like a spin on it, which is actually not quite right. Mm-hmm. The reality though is in the environment that we're in right now, you're right. If you look at it, the options that you have to raise capital, well, what are your options? I mean, equity, challenging equity markets, debt, very difficult, bank financing becoming increasingly restrictive, lenders are becoming much, much more challenging to deal with, and refinancings are getting harder, and obviously rates have gone up. Sale lease back on the other side is, again, is one of the many tools that you have. And I agree with you, on a relative basis, right now, it is somewhat more attractive as a form of raising capital for, for a company. And certainly, when you compare it with the changes in cost of borrowing from, a, let's say, in the bond markets, the spreads that we would see, it is more attractive right now, certainly. But is it attractive to the degree that it only works in this environment? No, I don't think so. Yeah, and I think there's also the risk that in this current climate, you've got to be that much more careful with underwriting credit, with making sure that this is a sustainable business. And I'm sure there's some sellers who are saying, yeah, I'd love to do a sale lease back because my business is suffering and this is the only way for me to get some liquidity and try to save my business. And that could be a major red flag for somebody like WP Carey or any buyer on any level from big to small is you've really got to make sure, yeah, it's mission critical. You got to make sure though that the credit and the site level financials are solid because you don't want the sale lease back to be the savior for the business. You want it to be something that's going to help continue long-term sustainability, correct? I couldn't agree more with you. At the end of the day, when we look at these deals, we don't sell. That's the main thing. So we're a public listed company. We're listed on a New York Stock Exchange. We're essentially perpetual evergreen money. And going back to what I said at the beginning, we try to generate, and that's the the bedrock of what we do, long-term inflation-adjusted income. For us, the idea that we structure a sale and lease back with the company, and six months later, the company disappears, that's a major issue. These sort of deals where it's seen as a measure of last resort for a company, we stay very, very clear of those. There needs to be a very sound business reason. And again, this brings us back to the point of credit underwriting and understanding the actual business. What are they going to do with the money? What is the use of those proceeds? Is that something that's going to help the company? Or is that something that helps the company to survive another quarter? 
And you got to be very careful to understand that. And you need to be really cautious to make sure you understand why a company seeks that type of capital and what they're going to do with it and how it ideally makes the company better than worse. So I completely agree with you. And the interests of our tenants and our interests are entirely aligned. We want them to stay in these buildings ideally into perpetuity. We want to upkeep that long-term tenant-landlord relationship. We want to be there for our tenants when they need us in terms of expanding a facility, in terms of making it more modern, investing in it. But at the same time, of course, if they don't need us, we have to be patient and, and hands off and wait by the sideline. But you're absolutely right. It is mission critical for us to make sure we buy properties where that are mission critical and that our tenants are going to stick around for the long run. Absolutely. Very good. So let's shift now to what I hinted at earlier, which is North America versus Europe and the commercial real estate market and, you know, specifically the sale leaseback transaction. What are some of the key differences that you see maybe in general between the two markets? And then, you know, maybe more specifically, it's just what's going on right now in the current commercial real estate climate. In terms of differentiating North America and Europe. So it's sometimes difficult from a U.S. perspective to look at Europe and to understand it. It seems like a number of countries, everyone seems to be talking a different language. No one seems to agree with each other. Everything is kind of confusing, different tax systems, different legal systems, different regulatory environment, different planning laws in each country. And the casual observer from the U.S. perspective, I would tell, yes, I agree with you. It can be an awful lot of a mess over here on the European side. And it is very challenging. It is true. Trying to close deals here on the European side, and certainly once you talk portfolios where you have multiple jurisdictions, multiple countries, it is a pretty tough process because you have to deal with all these different issues that if you were to deal with one major jurisdiction like the US, you don't really have to deal with. And it is often surprising even how just different cultural attitudes towards a sale and lease back or to transact or how you negotiate, how enormously that can vary from one country to the next. And something that might not be considered a challenging response or a challenging markup to a document for one person in one country could be in a different country seen as a giant issue. So those are some of the major differences. Really, it's the taxation system, it's the legal system, anything to do with planning law and with the actual legal underlying regulatory environment. And then you lay on top of that all the cultural nuances, the language barriers, where you're on a conference call with people from five different countries, you say something, and three people understand something entirely different than what you said, and then how you deal with those issues as you go through the process of structuring a deal. And that's just any commercial real estate deal. So then when you add in the additional wrinkle of, hey, we're going to do a sale leaseback transaction as well, then there's probably also some different nuances or perspectives across the region, right? And then in comparing Europe and North America, right? Absolutely. And I would say that's maybe similar between them is for most counterparties that we work with, it's the first time that they do this. Because quite often our companies are medium-sized, or even if it's somewhat larger companies, very often the counterparties that we engage with, that we work with, they've never done this before. So there's always a big process of handholding. And I'd say that's also something that on the European side is more of the process than it's maybe on the US. And the US side if you take a lease, for instance, the standard US triple net lease is a relatively standard document. And of course, you will always need to negotiate commercial elements in the transaction. And of course, you will also need to negotiate certain legal elements of the transaction. But the concept of what a triple net lease is, is very clearly understood. And it's not something you have to actually explain to someone when you start a deal. Now, 
compare that with Europe, where you have very different lease formats in all of these countries that mean very different things, whether it's an FRI lease in the UK or an ROZ lease template in the Netherlands or a so-called Dach und Fach lease in Germany. They all mean different things. There's a very different understanding of what the responsibilities between tenant and landlord actually are. So the concept of a triple net lease in the US, where as a tenant, you're responsible to pay for insurance, for taxes, for maintenance, repair, that's completely understood. But then try to explain that to someone in France who is maybe only used to a classic 369 lease, which by definition is a lease where the landlord is responsible for maintenance and repair of certain items. So trying to make that level playing field, it's a huge educational process and actually one of the main challenges, but again, also one of the potential great opportunities that you see in Europe is how somewhat, I don't want to say underdeveloped, but maybe that is kind of the best way to describe it and how non-homogenous these various countries are. Certainly one of the main challenges is navigating all these different pitfalls as you go from country to country. Makes sense. And then another difference, I think, between the two regions, which we spoke about before the podcast, when you and I were chatting for a couple of minutes, relates to the ESG regulations and requirements. For those not familiar that are listening to this right now, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And in investing, it refers to a set of standards for a company's behavior used by socially conscious investors to screen potential investments. So tell me what that means to you at WP Carey, and then maybe after that, we'll talk about kind of the differences in the regions. Sure. ESG is, seems like so in vogue right now and has been this trend buzzword that's been flying around all over the place. ESG, ESG, ESG. I'd say for us, this is nothing really new. It's been part of our underwriting since the get-go, but maybe actually going one step further down and ESG for most in the real estate world, actually most focused on the E, the environmental aspect of the building. Whereas when we look at it, we also look clearly at the tenant level when we structure some leaseback and also what impact on society that tenant the company might have. Is it something that we support or is it not something that we support? And then also on the, the G point, the governance point, again, that's something we look at very clearly as part of underwriting. We want to understand who actually runs these companies, who is actually in charge. And that's a core part of the underwriting of the businesses that are on the tenants. And so I would say while the ESG in the way of the real estate world, tends to be mostly focusing on the E. We also do look at the S, we also look at the G. And on the environmental front, it's clear that this is something everyone needs to focus on more. And there is no time wasted thinking more about how we can make the buildings that we use and the buildings that we require more environmentally friendly. The real estate industry does not have a good ESG track record, and certainly on the environmental front. And we only have one planet, we have to look after it. And in that context, I have to say our asset management team is doing a fantastic job in making sure that we are in regular contact with our tenants and we can help them to make their buildings more environmentally friendly, whether it's installing solar panels on the roof, whether it's improved insulation, maybe new windows, doors, you name it. So it's just making sure that we contribute our part to making this a successful outcome because, as I say, there's really only one planet and we can't mess it up. Very good. So how would you distinguish, you know, generally European and their approach to ESG versus the US? Again, the challenge we have to deal with is that when you look at Europe, in Europe alone, we have investments in 20 different countries and they have very different regulations and rules and aspirations. So it's difficult to, and often that's maybe one of the major flaws, actually looking at Europe and seeing as that this is Europe, this is one place. Again, there's, you know, 27 countries in the European Union alone and 
we have investments in 20 across the continent and in the UK, obviously, as well. So it's quite nuanced. Some countries, let's say the Nordics or Germany, they're pretty far advanced. They're trying to push regulations, but maybe other countries are somewhat behind. And I mentioned you know, on the US side, I would imagine, you know, maybe you can enlighten me actually on that front. It's also presumably somewhat state by state driven that there's some states that are more advanced than others. You're right. And the minute you said that, you know, there's the nuances of Europe and all the countries, I started thinking, you know, I almost should know that because I, my experience going back in commercial real estate is as an apartment broker and now as an apartment investor. And so I own multifamily in California and just in selling it and seeing regulations in California compared to, you know, I live out in Arizona now, I live in Scottsdale, just comparing how that state operates really on the whole commercial front compared to other states, it is significantly different. And that actually is, I would say, one major flaw that many Europeans have when they look at the US. They think the US is one country, it's all the same. Well, that's really not the case. If you talk to your average Texan and your average New Yorker or your average Californian, they are very different. And also the environment that they live in, and again, it's quite different. So I would say people like to generalize. And if you look at it from a US perspective to Europe, it looks like it's one big homogenous place. Well, it isn't, but vice versa. Many Europeans make the incorrect assumption that the US is just one place that's the same. And they tend to underestimate those huge regional variations within the US. Very true. Yeah. And I do agree. People do generalize. Well, one thing we can agree on that is very general is that the sale leaseback transaction is a great product. It's a great way to really provide businesses such as WP Carry with you know sustained long-term success. And I think on that, I want to thank you for being on this, Chris. I enjoyed our conversation and look forward to hopefully getting a chance to meet you personally at some point. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Mission Critical, a sale leaseback podcast by Ascension. To find out more about Ascension and how we can help you achieve a higher standard of real estate advisory, visit www.higherascension.com. And then make sure to search for Mission Critical in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. We talk to Sally Spack.